1: So go to squarespace.com stuff right now, and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff, and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace?
0: Hey, everybody. We are doing a northeastern swing for our 2023 tour, and which includes one date in dear old Canada, right? That's right. We're going to swing it up starting May 4th at
1: the Warner Theater in D.C. It's going to be amazing. May 5th, we're going to be at the Chevalier, which you have to say with your pinky in the air. That's in Boston. And then, Chuck, May 6th, we're finishing up in Toronto, Ontario at Massey Hall. It's going to be massive at Massey Hall.
0: That's right. Our first shows went great earlier this year. It's a great topic, and we are super, super excited to take it to D.C., the Boston metro area and Toronto. Yep, so go to Linktree
1: slash SYSK Live for tickets. And for you oldsters like us, that's LINKTR.EE slash SYSK Live. We'll see you guys in May.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck and Jerry's here somewhere, running around like a chicken with their head cut off, like headless Mike, uh, and that makes this stuff you should know. <laughs> <laughs> Mike the headless chicken? Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, that were immediately reminded me of the McNoggin. What? That was, I mentioned that way back then. There's a just look up McNoggin. It's a is it fried chicken heads? It's a fried chicken head that slipped into some fried chicken. Oh, at a, at a restaurant. <laughs> have you ever eaten at H and F Holman and Finch? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have had that burger at Pond City Market where we used to have our studios.
1: Oh, if you go to the flagship restaurant, fried chicken heads are on the menu. Oh, really? Yes. And when you eat one, you're like, "I've gone too far." This this dinner has turned into a blood orgy, basically.
0: I have never. I'm sending you the McNugget right now, just because. That's the kind of stuff we're doing now. That's yeah. how loose this has gotten. Here, I'll, I'll do a typing sound effect.
1: <laughs> All
0: right. Feast your eyes on the McNoggin, and let's talk about arcades, eh? Uh,
1: yes. Let's. I'm really excited about this one, Charles, um, because both of us were kind of – we hit two different sweet spots with this, right? I mean, you were in the, the golden era, and I was in the silver era. Am I correct?
0: Yeah. I mean, you – you were kind of. You probably went to the golden era. I was at times, forbidden right? from going to. Oh, arcades okay. As a little youngster. too young. Yeah, yeah. yeah My mom so. was
1: like, "That's a drug den."
0: Right. <laughs> uh, which is funny because I went to a lot of arcades, and I know I was a naive little Baptist boy. Mm-hmm. But there, actually, what am I saying? There was probably drugs all over. the Yeah, place you're like, why that.
1: are you acting so goofy, Todd? <laughs>
0: Jeez, get it together. Uh, but we're talking about th- mainly the golden age of arcades, and uh, what else does it dovetail with? You said nostalgia well, was, bomb for us, and what I else? was
1: part of the uh, silver age. Is that what you? Oh, uh, okay.
0: I thought there was one additional thing you were going to say.
1: No, I don't think so.
0: Okay. Well, this dovetails nicely, I think, with our episode on Nintendo, obviously. Totally. Uh, and in fact, we've had this. Uh, Dave Ruse helped us out with this one. Dave
1: Ruse, um, co-creator of the hit podcast Biblical Time
0: Machine, <laughs> uh, but he wrote this a while ago. But I've been sort of sitting on it until Nintendo, the Nintendo stank wore off. <laughs> uh, and did we do one on Atari or not, or just the you ET? We did game? one with Strickland, I think, on Atari. No, I definitely did a two-parter on tech stuff, but we did not. We did the ET game, though, right? Or yes, no? Yes, yes, okay. we did
1: that one. Yeah, we've talked about the video game crash of 1983 like multiple times. And we did pinball. <clears throat> we did do pinball, and that actually kind of factors in remotely. Uh, we won't go into it much, but pinball kind of prefigured the, the video game arcade um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, not not the least that it had an unsavory um, reputation among parents, and mm-hmm. kids loved to go play there. Um, but after pinball kind of stopped being as much of a thing, there was a little bit of a drought um, until we pick up – and i think that say the 70s the early 70s late 60s with a young man an electrical engineer from university of utah named nolan bushnell
0: nolan bushnell uh figures into this story as much as you can figure into the birth of the arcade because yeah. he was a um a nerd he was uh in all the best ways mm-hmm. he was an ee e. major uh at utah like you said and when you are a nerd in university in the um, late 1960s, early 70s, you're going to start playing very rudimentary computer games yes. and think they are awesome. Uh, and that very first game that he played was one in uh, from 62, developed at MIT, called
1: Space War! Exclamation an,
0: point. Yeah, with a big fat exclamation.
1: Yeah, and it, it spread very quickly among nerds in college all over the country. It was a big deal. Um, but you say that... that um, Nolan Bushnell was like a, an important figure, you can actually kind of make an argument that this may have never happened had it not been for him. Because as he kind of recounts later, well, listen, there was no one in the same position that he was in, probably in the world, because he had an electrical engineering degree and he played com- he played games on computers. So he mm-hmm. knew about video games, like mm-hmm. I should say video game, because there was Computer basically game. just one at the time. Yeah, Yeah. And then he also, um, in, in during summers and then shortly after he graduated college, he was the games director for an amusement park outside of Salt Lake City called Lagoon. Mm-hmm. And there's pr- seriously probably no one else on the planet that had that experience with computer games and also with um, arcade games like pinball or ski ball was one um, who could have kind of synergized them the way that Nolan Bushnell did create Atari. Mm. That's my take.
0: Do you have a thing against hey, Nolan Bushnell? No, but i tell you what. Is Nolan Bushnell still around? I don't know, my friend. He loves you if he is. I will say that. Why? Because you're saying he's the only one that could have done it in the world and that it wouldn't have happened without him. He's I, like, you can make he's it singing the, the Josh Clark praises right now. Well, Nolan Bushnell, if you're out there, I think that that demands that you get in touch and thank <laughs> me. Yeah, send some of that arcade money, <laughs> Josh's way. <laughs> sure. Uh, but you are right in that he had um, he had a, an economic understanding mm-hmm. that proved to be pretty key. As in, he uh, he knew what it cost to like build a game and a game cabinet. Mm-hmm. He knew how much they had to make to make that money back. Mm-hmm. And turn a profit, uh, so just sort of learn knowing the economics of how this stuff worked, um, and, and like you said, also being into the games was a was a key reason this all happened.
1: Yeah, so he saw a real uh, opportunity to do something big, and he, he's alive, by the way. Okay, cool. Uh, well, then yes, please do get in touch, Nolan Bushnell. <laughs> yeah. Um, he he recruited a, a guy named Ted Dabney, who uh, together they went on to found Atari with another guy named Al Alcorn, Alan Alcorn, um, and the three of them created uh, a first a, a ripoff of Space War called Computer Space in 1971. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say like it wasn't it wasn't a good it wasn't a good game it was too hard um, because the whole point of creating a game they found out after this first attempt is to make it just hard enough to keep people interested, but easy enough that you can play it while half drunk.
0: Yeah, like t- easy to play, hard to master.
1: Yeah, because these, these coin-operated games, their first targets were bars. Um, so computer space, it's very frequently said it's a commercial failure. But um, Nolan Bushnell, uh, my new friend, he points out that we sold <laughs> enough of these units that we were able to go on and found Atari. Yeah. Um, so they actually did sell some. It went okay, but again, it, it was supposedly way too hard, and they, they took that as a lesson learned, and they moved on the next year to create Pong.
0: Yeah, they said, all right, you want easy? <laughs> <laughs> right. Let me introduce you to Pong, uh, and I know I mentioned this on the Strickland's episode, but I had the, uh, you know, I, and I think you were kind of the same in your family, sort of, you know, middle-class middle, middle class folks who mm-hmm. a lot of times got the knockoff versions of whatever, whether it yeah, was— Ping. The Yeah, whether well, it was the, the Not Quite IZOD shirt or the Not Quite Mongoose bike. I had n- Knights of the Round Table po- right? knockoff polo shirts. <laughs> yeah, I had the Not Quite Pong, which it was, I believe, the Sears and Roebuck version of Pong. It
1: always is.
0: Yeah, I don't know what it was called, but it was essentially the same thing, which is um, ping pong or table tennis. It, uh, it was called Gnop. Was it really the Sears version? <laughs> no, that's Pong Oh, okay, backwards. <laughs> oh, I gotcha. Boy, I was slow the uptake on that one.
1: It's okay. There's somebody out there laughing.
0: Uh, but Pong was based on a 1958 video game, um, Tennis for Two. Did you see Did
1: you see video of that game?
0: Of Tennis for Two? Yeah. yeah.
1: It's played on a radar oscillator. Yeah. Like the same kind of like round fisheye screen yeah, yeah. that you use <laughs> for like to detect missiles in 1950. That's how the game is played. But it's actually pretty sophisticated if you watch it.
0: Yeah, there was another game that was on a round screen. Was it the um, was it con- Computer Space? Did you see that one? I didn't. Actually. Was that a square screen? I don't know. Anyway, something in my memory bank tells me there was another one on a round screen because they just, you know, that's what graphic screens were mm-hmm. like in the '60s. They were radar screens. Yeah, but I mean, this
1: thing was like—it's almost like they broke into like a DOD. Um, Missile silo and hooked up their controllers and we're playing tennis for two on it. That's what it looks like in this video.
0: Yeah. Uh, And, you know, while we're singing Bushnell's praises for creating Atari and launching the arcade, basically the modern arcade. uh, He also was one of the founders of Charles Entertainment Cheese, (laughs) uh, better known as Chuck E. Cheese, which is still around. Yeah. Have you ever seen I'm sure we've talked about it before, but have you
1: seen the Rockafire Explosion documentary? The what? So Chuck E. Cheese has his band. Like they have like the live animatronic band at their Chuck E. Cheese locations. Showbiz Pizza had their own called Rockafire Explosion. I think a gorilla was like the lead singer. And it's very cute. Same thing. Animatronics. They sang some songs and stuff like that. Um, And they made a documentary about people whose passion in life is finding and rescuing and restoring old Rockafire Explosion setups. Oh, wow. It's one That's of cool. those, like, really great, like, social interest documentaries that, like, just kind of fly under the radar. But it's like, uh-huh. this is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life. It's just great. Oh, I got to check that out. Please do check it out. rockefeller Fire Explosion, I think it was mid-aughts, maybe 2007 yeah. or 8.
0: I love anything where someone takes old stuff and restores it for, even if it's just for display or whatever. Okay, well, then I have something else
1: to tell you. Um, I was saving this for the end, but I happened, I don't even know how I happened upon this. There's a website called Aussie Arcade, and it's it's almost like a news server or listserv or something like that. But I found a post called Atari Star Wars Cockpit Restoration. So you remember the Atari Star Wars game? Uh Uh-huh. Do you remember the sit-down version? Uh, yeah. Okay. So a guy in Australia got his hands on one of these that's seen better days. And he spent nine months restoring it, like, and I don't mean the outside. I mean the the wiring. He resoldered soldered the wires. He like electroplated the metal parts again. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. And he chronicled it exhaustively. So if you want to like spend an hour just being impressed, go look for Atari Star Wars right. cockpit restoration by Womble. Womble's <laughs> the guy who did it on Aussie Arcade, and you'll just be wowed.
0: All right. I'm going to, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the day now, at least. You'll
1: like it, Chuck. I promise. And it's not Andy. a video, it's just, it's photos and like explanations and stuff.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So back to Alan Alcorn and Pong. Uh, Pong was a huge hit. Uh, they put the very first one in a bar in Sunnyvale, California mm-hmm. uh, called Andy Caps, which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Fun little historical footnote. And a couple, and this is like the movie version. Two weeks later, they called <laughs> and said, hey, this thing's not working anymore. And they go over and they was like, here's your problem. And they open the, the coin catcher and like a million dollars spills out. Right. Um, but that's how the story goes. It was basically so popular. It was jammed with quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sold 8,000 Pong cabinets uh, in the face of knockoffs because yeah. it took a year to get the patent for Pong. So there were knockoffs being sold and they still ended up selling Uh, thirty-five thousand total pong cabinets. Yeah, they sold eight thousand just the first year, and that was with six people building them. Like they had six employees. That's and a pong cabinet in a bar in today's dollars could bring in close to a hundred grand in quarters. Wow! Every single year, if you had one of those in your bar, uh, I think they were saying it was bringing close to uh, in today's dollars about two hundred and seventy dollars. Uh, and, of course, that's if it's played every day. Of course, it can be
1: closed on Christmas. Sure. Oh, you, you did know. the math? Is that where you got it?
0: I did the math, but wow. it, you know, I sort of rounded up.
1: Still, I'll bet Andy Caps was open Christmas.
0: <laughs> but it was also a good place to meet um, somebody if you were interested in them because it was a good way to have a conversation. You played side by side. It was a... Social lubricant because you were drinking at a fern bar, Mm -hmm. uh, a Harvey Wallbanger playing Pong Mm -hmm. and, you know, meeting some ladies. Down at the Regal Beagle. Exactly. Um, So uh, this was
1: 1973? Yeah, 1973. So Atari went from not existing to coming out with its first game in 1971 to having a smash hit and actually creating stand-up coin-operated arcade video games as an industry from nothing to in 1973 to 1974 selling out to Atar, uh to Warner Brothers or Warner Communications for 28 million which is almost 150 million today yeah. in in sorry in 6 years
0: mm-hmm. that's crazy
1: yeah i mean that's definitely worth singing the praises
0: yeah absolutely uh and you know dave argues that the golden age was 78 to 82 mhm um I would argue it trickled into 83, and people were still going into arcades yeah. in 84 and 85. But um, I, I think he's probably pretty close because 83, as we'll see later, is, um, if you look at data, is when gross profits, you know, really kind of didn't bottom out, but were a lot less than during those previous four years.
1: Yeah, I think it was like 84, maybe, especially 84, but probably into 85, it was like a, a dead man walking. You didn't know it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, people were still, I mean, those, those video arcades that started to spring up like mushrooms all across the country, I think in 1982, there were 13,000 arcades <laughs> in the U.S. And let's just get this straight, five, six years before, there were probably zero, and all of a sudden there were 13,000 arcades. There were tons of companies that were getting into um, creating and designing and building these stand-up cabinets that were sent to all of these 13,000 arcades in the United States and it was just the thing. It was the biggest thing around at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean I can off the top of my head I can think of four arcades that were within 12 minute a 12 minute drive from my house in suburban Atlanta.
1: I see I the only one I could come up with was the one at Southwick Mall in Toledo that I wasn't allowed to go to. It was called Red Baron's. And okay. I don't even remember what it looked like inside. I saw pictures of the old sign. I was like, yeah, that's it. Um, I just remember it being dark. And I think I might have gone in there once as a slightly older kid after I was, like, allowed to do whatever I want, you know, like age 12. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, kind of like this neat place that I, I wasn't allowed to go to before, but it kind of missed. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, if I wish one thing for you, it would be that, is uh, so that you were just a little bit older. Yeah. And then, then you could take those years off, because I don't want you to be my age. Okay. I want you to be my age in the 80s. That would be really neat. I wonder <laughs> when we'll start doing that. We'll start playing with age and
1: experience like that. I have an idea. I want to tell you this. I think this is so cool. I right. There's no way I can possibly do this, so I'll just share it with the universe, and maybe somebody can do it. Okay. Imagine, so we've got like AI that's starting to get pretty smart all of a sudden. And if you Mm. listen to The End of the World with Josh Clark, that may not be a good thing. Just saying. Um, But the the AI that's starting to be deployed is getting smarter and smarter and more and more human-like and more and more capable. Um, And one thing I thought would be really cool is if the AI that's out there today could study the different stats and footage of every NBA player that ever existed. Okay. And then eventually you can say, I want the 88 Lakers to play the um, wow. 2015 Heat. And yeah. the AI would play a simulated game that would play out probably exactly like it would have played out in real life if you could actually do
0: that. I mean, they do those simulated games now for wow. like the, the big game. Uh, for Super stuff Bowl? Like, yeah. I <laughs> thought we weren't allowed to say that. Who cares? What, <laughs> what is the Super Bowl police
1: going to come get us?
0: Uh, yeah, they, they play those those um, computer sims, uh, but I don't know if it's as, like, robust as you're probably thinking. Okay. And I don't know if they have done, like, matching up classic teams, because that would be pretty fun. It, it would be. that Especially in the NBA, that's a big argument of, like, mm-hmm. you know, which era was best or whatever. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so, anyway, the arcades, I had four that I can think of off, off the dome that were within a 15-minute drive. Uh, kids in the 80s were feral, basically. (laughs) Um, If you're a younger person and you watch Stranger Things and you think, like, was it really like that? Mm -hmm. Yes, it was really like that. It was so sweet. You would come home. uh, My mom was at home, but I would basically come home and immediately leave again Mm -hmm. most times Mm -hmm. and not come back until after dark. Uh, Latchkey kids would come home to an empty house. That was me. And then go somewhere else or have friends over Mm -hmm. or go straight to a friend's house. And we just didn't have oversight. Um, so somehow, you know, most of us did okay. Uh, at least me and my friends did. Like, there were no, I'm sure there were plenty of tragedies. But not in my room. We all did fine.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, yes, there, there, there would be a tragedy once in a while that would make natural sure. and scare everybody. But it was so right. few and far between at the time.
0: Yeah. Uh, but one thing I wanted to get into with Dave, um, he kept saying, like, quarters, quarters, quarters. Mm-hmm. In the early days of arcades, at least at the ones I went to, there were not quarters. Was there were dimes? tokens. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you, they had deals going. Like, a game didn't cost a quarter. A game cost, depending on the deal that day, if you went on, like, a Tuesday, you would get, like, 20 tokens for a dollar. Oh, wow. Uh, or something like that. Like, they would have, like, double token day. Mm-hmm. And a game was never a quarter. So you could play and play and play forever for five bucks because games ran on tokens that were not the value of a quarter. And then eventually, of course, quarters, or maybe in some places they already used them, but then the quarter became like a 50-cent game was like, whoa, like, right. are, you, are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, and now when you go to like a Dave & Buster's, you get a, you pay $50 for some <laughs> card. Right. And you didn't even know how much you're paying per game unless you read the fine print. You just buzz your card. It's, you know, it's over. It's several dollars, probably.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm sure, probably five bucks a game, maybe in some cases for the big,
0: big ones. But right. um, it, it's different. I mean, I went to a Dave and Buster's recently with uh, Ruby, and it's not a ton of just regular old arcade games. It's no, big things and uh, cranes grabbing stuff, toys and interactive stuff. It's fine. It was. It's fun.
1: Yeah, it's just not a video arcade. A video arcade in yeah, the late seventies and early eighties was a very specific space. Yes. Yes. It was dark. There was very few people over the age of eighteen or nineteen in there. Hmm. Um. It was just a. It was a kid's place, and like you said, kids yeah. were feral at the time, and you could. Your parents didn't know where you were. So you could spend as much time as you wanted or as much money as you had <laughs> yeah. at the the arcade or out in the woods or doing whatever. Um, and so because that this was like a new thing, like kids were, I think, allowed to like kind of roam free in, in the mid-70s for sure, and definitely before that too. But they didn't have this place to go to. Maybe a pinball arcade was there or something like that, but nothing yeah. like this. And the difference between... A pinball machine and a 1979 stand-up art video arcade machine is just oh, yeah. mind-boggling, especially yeah. if you're playing this thing in 1979 and your only exposure previously was to things like pinball machines.
0: Yeah. Um, should we take a break? Yeah. All right. We'll take our first break and we'll be right back. All right, so we've established that the the peak of parents not caring about their children was in the 80s, (laughs) the early 1980s. -hmm. Uh, Arcades came along to squeeze dollars out of us, and they started getting better games. You know, the games at first, you know, I started looking at these, and we're going to talk about some of the iconic games. And what I realized is the iconic games of the era almost all still hold up today. Um, Maybe not with the graphics. It may be a little rudimentary. Mm -hmm. But most of these iconic games are still, uh, the gameplay is still challenging. And that's why I think it holds up. Um, The ones um, that aren't, that don't hold up as far as gameplay goes are games like um, Pole Position, which was the first 3D car racing game Mm -hmm. where you were sort of positioned right behind the car. Uh, And Pole Position was a huge game in 1982 that... Really brought on driving games, but pole position doesn't hold up because the gameplay is not that great, um, in addition to not looking great. But if you go play Miss Pac Man or Space Invaders or Centipede or Galaga, yeah, or Galaga or Asteroids, these games are still challenging and fun to play.
1: Yeah. And Galaga, I will put money that it still looks good to just about anybody. Yes, it is bit mapped because it's a bit. It's like 8 or 16 or whatever bit graphics, but it still looks good, and it moves well, and it's just a it's a cool-looking game. It is. Uh,
0: 1981, uh, shout-out to uh, Shigeru Yokoyama for designing Galaga on the heels of Galaxian, their uh-huh. previous game, uh-huh. uh, which was uh, not as good Galaga. And both were inspired, of course, by Space Invaders, mm-hmm. which was the next biggest game after Pong to come along in 1978.
1: Yeah, so Pong just put video games on the map. And then the next up was Japan, who said, oh, yeah, hold our sake. And they came (laughs) up with Space Invaders in (laughs) 1978, and it became such an overnight success in Japan that people rented empty commercial spaces and just put Space Invaders in there and created, like, these kind of pop-up arcades that were open 24 hours a day and had a line out the door at all times. Apparently, the legend goes... That there was a nationwide shortage of hundred yen coins because these storefronts with the Space Invader uh, machines were sucking them up.
0: Crazy. Pretty cool. Uh, I will say that Dave and Buster's had a uh, like a probably probably ten foot s- tall Space Invaders. Oh wow! Uh, that you can play, which is kind of cool.
1: Ten feet. What's the point of it being ten feet tall? Is the
0: screen like that big? Yeah, that's how big the screen is.
1: Oh, okay, I got you. Well, it's pretty yeah. neat.
0: Does, does it look <laughs> good though? Yeah, it looks awesome.
1: So Space Invaders is the reason we have all those space fighting or space shooter Mm -hmm. themed games that are so clustered in like the early 80s, late 70s. That was the one. But um, the the next game that came out that really kind of shook that up, that was the trend forever. Um, There was one I saw, Chuck, called um, Starfire from 1979.
0: I don't remember that one.
1: It was by... um, I can't remember who it was, but th- it was this um, this company, this games company that just kept pushing the envelope. But anyway, Starfire, if you watch the gameplay, it has the same exact font as Star Wars.
0: Uh-huh. And oh, interesting.
1: And you are unambiguously shooting TIE fighters.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But it was They're... in no way, shape, or form licensed from Star Wars. It was just that big of a ripoff.
0: They ripped it off. So that
1: was like the big trend was space fighters until Pac-Man came along in 1980 and said,
0: Boom! Yeah, Pac-Man was the first, um, it was a Namco game, a Japanese uh, gaming company. And it was the first game uh, to have a a mascot, like a little character. Mm -hmm. Um, Previous to this, you know, you had your little shooter ship with space invaders and your little triangular uh, spaceship with asteroids Mm -hmm. and not even a ship with games like Missile Command, But which actually that may have been after Pac-Man, I'm not sure. Um, but Pac-Man was the first mascot. It was designed explicitly to not be violent. It was designed explicitly to appeal, uh, appeal to young girls, uh, because they were trying to make more money. And, you know, it was, it was sort of a boys thing mm-hmm. at the time. They're like, we need to get girls in here. And Pac-Man comes along and they were into it. The boys were into it and it became a worldwide sensation.
1: It was. I had a Pac-Man lunchbox and matching thermos that I nice. was like one of my <laughs> prized possessions. The Pac-Man sure. cartoon. This is about when I came in. Pac-Man cartoon <laughs> was. It's, I think it's probably still good. There's a song, Pac-Man Fever. There's a um an article we really need to shout out on um The Verge by yeah. Laura June, um from back in 2013, and um she points out in this article that uh Pac-Man Fever. Um, sold a million records in 1982, and Survivor's Eye of the Tiger, which was the number one hit of 1982, only mm-hmm. sold a million more. <laughs> That's how big Pac-Man Fever was.
0: Yeah, Buckner and Garcia, the, the singers of Pac-Man Fever, terrible song. Was it so like bad. in the
1: tune of uh, Cat Scratch Fever? No. Oh, okay, well, that was just The Simpsons that screwed me up
0: then. No, no, no. Go listen to Pac-Man Fever. It's it's awful. But, it, you know, those guys, uh, hats off to them. They made it, sold a million records. Sure. I've never done that. Yeah. I never sold w- one record, although we may soon.
1: Oh, yeah, man. That's <laughs> cool. <laughs> Foreshadowing.
0: Uh, Centipede was another watershed game in 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first game um, co-designed by a woman named uh, Donna Bailey. Uh, she was the only woman working at Atari, or at least the only designer. And she... Picked out that trackball and Centipede again. Uh, gameplay holds up, still very, very hard game to play. Yeah, I was watching gameplay on YouTube of Centipede and I
1: was getting anxious just on like the second second level.
0: Yeah, these games are, are, are fun and hard. Um I don't think we mentioned that Asteroid, I think, was the first game to untether the ship. Um like Space Invaders and Galaga, all those games. Mm. You you can move left and right at the bottom. Yeah. But you're but shooting a-
1: upward toward the top of the screen.
0: Yeah, Yeah. what made Asteroids really, really hard was once you were brave enough to hit that throttle button Mm -hmm. and start flying around a little bit. Like, it was, it's a very tough game. And then I think, um,
1: was it Defender? Yeah, Defender is a really cool one um, that still holds up, too. That you could shoot left or right. And so it was a scrolling game, whereas with some of the other ones, they were like, yes, whereas some of the other ones, they were just, or all the other ones, they were just a new level. Which basically was like, oh, these shapes are now in a different location and they're purple rather than green.
0: Yeah, or were they scrolled vertically, but this was definitely the first horizontal scroll.
1: Yes, and it was cool. That's another one that really holds up to Defender.
0: Yeah, uh, Miss Pac-Man, far superior to Pac-Man in 1982 was, uh, I mean, I feel like it was just as popular probably as Pac-Man.
1: It may... As far as like play goes, I would guess it's it eclipse Pac Man. But as far as like pop culture Zeitgeist, goes, yeah, Pac Man might have Ms. Pac Man beat. I think they were kind of hand in hand appropriately, you know.
0: Yeah, you're right. Um, I want to shout out a few more games just quickly that I feel like were sort of game changers. Uh, the, the game Tron, which oh, came, yeah, that was so um, good. Just on the heels of the movie Tron, uh, it was great because it had four different sub games within the game and that light cycle game was like one of the coolest things you'd ever played when you played it
1: so hard to at Is least for really like hard. a six or seven year old it was very
0: well hard. and as it as it progressed those first levels are kind of easy and they just get harder and harder mm-hmm. uh and then for me personally uh the game tempest uh the game joust mm-hmm. and, the, and the game battle zone were all three like big big games for me
1: i always loved Cubert. anywhere there was a qbert i, I would play that yeah
0: q fun. And that makes sense because you were younger and sort of a, a skewed toward younger kids, I think.
1: What was the one where it was like hamburger or something like that?
0: <gasps> oh, Burger Time? Yes, Burger
1: Time. Burger Time was good. I never played good. that. Dig Dug was good. And then still to this day, I went and looked at um, Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. Mm-hmm. And that was way too hard for me at the time um it's still Still hard hard. yeah Yeah. but it's it's some of the best like graphics and like colorful like movement and it's just just such a beautiful game still to this day and that one came out donkey kong came out in 1981
0: yeah and i don't think we covered in the nintendo episode the name donkey kong did we we did because remember somebody tried to file
1: suit i think rca tried to sue them and they were like no this is that's that's long gone that ship has sailed
0: Oh, Okay, because I, I, for some reason it didn't um, ring a bell because I'd never really stopped to wonder why in the world it was called Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such a weird name, but apparently uh, they were looking for an English word that meant stubborn like a donkey mm-hmm. and then just combine that with King Kong.
1: Yep. And Mario, I don't think we talked about this. Mario was originally known as Jump Man, yeah, one Jump word, Man.
0: not even hyphenated. Uh, we should mention Dragon's Lair briefly. Uh, it's a game that came out in 1983. I don't know if you remember Dragon's Lair much. Mm-hmm, I do. Uh, yeah, it was, it was the first game that used and kind of the only one that used, um, laser disc technology to basically, uh, where you were playing a, a Disney cartoon. Yep. And it was from Don Bluth, an ex Disney animator. He did, um, uh, an American tale, I think. Oh, okay. I think he was
1: like the lead on that. Maybe.
0: I gotcha. Um, but here was a deal with Dragon's Lair it looked cool and it looked different than anything you'd ever seen and way better than like the 16-bit technology graphics-wise at the time mm-hmm. but the gameplay was terrible it, you basically just push buttons at key moments to advance the story mm-hmm. and like you weren't really playing you didn't have control of the character
1: no so let's say a, a single minute of this this movie was chopped up into f- five different Segments. Yeah. Over the course of this whole minute that played out, you would move that thing like five times and the rest of the time you're just standing there waiting.
0: It was terrible. I never played Dragon's Lair. I was suckered into it at first because it looked amazing. Yes. And then I was like, This is bad. Yeah, it really was. And which sort of just reinforces my point about the, the gameplay. If it's if it's good, it holds up. Yep. No one no one's playing Dragon's Lair these days. Um
1: I want I'll bet there's somebody out there that's like Dragon's Lair for Life.
0: Yeah, maybe. Um <laughs> I,
1: I wanna yeah, I wanna shout out too from my youth, my super youth. Um, there was one called Comanche, which is like a Wild West shoot 'em up. I never played that. I remember it. Do you remember? i I cannot find any documentation of it anywhere online. Just can't find it. Um, but I'm glad that you verified that. I used to play that at the little putt putt on Catawba Island by where my family used to vacation in summers. Nice. And then the other one was, um, it just escaped me, Chuck, because I was talking about Comanche. Paperboy? No, I don't remember. I'll I'll shout it out. It'll come to me later, and I'll just interrupt you with it, okay?
0: Do you remember Battlezone, the one I mentioned?
1: Uh, is that the one that was like a, sh- a destroyer?
0: No, Battlezone was the one where you put your face in what kind of you would think now is like a VR thing, uh-huh. like a... Uh, like a submarine uh, periscope, mm-hmm. and you had these two levers, and you were a tank basically, and it was all like um, I don't know the technical name, but when it's just like the green lines and like a grid layout, mm-hmm. like th- those were the graphics, but it was uh, it was kind of had a, like a three D effect, yeah, and was really pretty rad. Oh, I'll bet it knocked
1: your socks off back then. Yeah, it did. Um, I thought of the other one and another one. Okay. The one I was thinking of was Empire City. I think it's Empire City 1942 or something. You're like a gangster and you're that. just shooting okay. other gangsters. Okay. It's pretty cool. And then the
0: other one was Spy Hunter. Remember Spy Hunter? Mm, yeah, that was that was a pretty good driving game that at the was time. That was a great one
1: because you put like that oil slick and people would spin out who were chasing you. It was just yeah. very neat.
0: I knew this episode was going to go like this.
1: Yeah, we just took fistfuls <laughs> of member berries before we did this one.
0: Uh kill screens we should talk about uh, because there was a, a technological um, limitation to these arcade games mm-hmm. that were based on 8-bit uh, processors, the hardware was. Mm-hmm. And an 8-bit processor can only store 256 total values. So if you got good enough at some of these games, you could get up to screen 255, and when you hit screen 256, the game would sort of skits out on you and, and stop, and that was called... A kill screen,
1: yeah. Um, they were the, the game was trying to reset to zero, but there wasn't a level zero. Um, so the game would just do some weird stuff. But what's interesting is, does that mean then for like Pac Man in particular is very famous to have that um, 256 um, value curse and you can only get to 255, but if they just had named level one level zero. Would the I wonder if oh, the game would just just start over again, and you could just play it in an infinite loop? I don't know. Uh, Donkey Kong had one too. They had the same problem with uh, the two hundred and sixty or two hundred fifty-six value curse. Um, at level twenty-two, you should have two hundred and sixty seconds to complete the level, but because the the eight-bit um, processors, like I don't know what two hundred and sixty is, so let's just call it four. You have four seconds to complete. So
0: oh, interesting. in theory, impossible.
1: it goes beyond level 22. But in right. reality, in practicality, it's it stops there because no one can beat that screen in four seconds.
0: Not even Billy Mitchell. I'll bet an
1: AI in the future, Kim.
0: <laughs> All right. So I say we talk about a few of these um, little tidbits and then we'll take a break and then talk about what killed the arcade. Sure. Good. Yeah. Uh, these are kind of fun because, you know, if you were a kid at that age... <laughs> um, or, heck, I still enjoy entering my initials. <laughs> A-S-S. When I, <laughs> yeah, when I get a high score, I knew one of us was going to say that. <laughs> uh, the very first game to even display a high score at all was called Seawolf from 1976. Dude, do you remember that game? I do. I, I don't think I really played it, but I remember it. it. So, everybody, it was it was a submarine
1: game, so you just shot torpedoes at ships. But the joystick was a periscope. It's so cool looking still today. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And it had great like graphics on the cabinet. It was just an all-around neat game. The the I don't know about the gameplay and the graphics like in the game weren't top-notch or anything, but just the periscope alone was very cool.
0: No, I totally remember that. It it just <laughs> kind of um came out and then came down. Right, but that was Like the a f- periscope does. Right. But that was the first one that had a high score, you said? That's the first one that just registered a high score. The first um, one that uh, I believe stored the high score was Pac-Man.
1: Uh, I thought it was Space Invaders.
0: No, no, no. What did I say? Pac-Man? Mm-hmm. You got yeah, Pac-Man fever. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Space Invaders in 78. Uh, but you still didn't have the initials. That was Starfire mm-hmm. in 79 that let you put your initials. Mm-hmm. And then Asteroids was the first one that showed like the top 10 or whatever.
1: Yeah. And the problem with space invaders was that, um, if you unplugged the cabinet, the high score was gone forever, which was very richly portrayed in that Seinfeld episode, the Frogger. Remember that one? Oh, that's right. Where George, like his only legacy is he still had the high score at the pizza place that he used to hang out at in high school on the Frogger. And he tried to (laughs) keep it going. And of course it just didn't work out for George.
0: Yeah, I forgot to shout out Frogger. That's another game that's still fun and still hard. I totally forgot about it too, and it really is. I like.
1: I, I even looked up that episode. I still didn't think that, like, oh yeah, Frogger was a great game, but it absolutely was. And that, that's well, actually a really good point, real quick, Chuck. If uh-huh. you played Frogger on the arc on like a stand up arcade, it was exponentially better looking. It played better than what your friend was playing at his house at home on the Atari twenty six hundred. And that was another big draw. That even when the controllers and the home consoles came out, there was still reason to go like put your tokens in at the arcade.
0: No, absolutely. Um I would argue that Frogger was one that translated pretty well to the Atari. Sure. It just didn't look nearly as good. Yeah, they didn't look as good. And but some games did not translate at all. Like the infamously bad uh, pac-man for atari oh yeah it, uh, was I, bad. it was bad i was very very excited to get this game it was the biggest thing in the world mm-hmm. and i got it for my birthday and it was just it, it didn't sound right it went <laughs> da-donk, donk, da-donk, donk. <laughs> like when it was eating the things the mouth it, it just none of it worked it mm. was just a bad game that is really weird. Uh, and by the way the thing i couldn't remember about battle zone it's the uh, vector graphics
1: Oh yeah, which apparently I don't know a lot about it, but it's you can um, render way more, a way higher resolution graphics with less processing power somehow.
0: Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's take that break. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll come back and talk about what killed the arcade right after this.
1: Right, Chuck, what killed the arcade?
0: Ronald Reagan? Kind of. <laughs> he did not. He pro- yeah, right. Well, a couple of things killed the uh, helped kill the arcade, um, one of which was kind of what happened with Atari in a way in that um, it got so popular that people just started making terrible games mm-hmm. to try and cash in, and that, that was true for the uh, stand-up and sit-down cabinet arcade games as well. They just started making too many of them, and a lot of them weren't good. And a lot of these arcade go- owners, like, you know, borrowed money to get the latest games in there that ended up stinking, and that, that bit them in the rear end.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, anybody, any small business entrepreneur could open an arcade because all of those manufacturers had programs where they would they would give you these machines on credit, and you could pay them back in quarters if you wanted to. But like you said, when the, the, you couldn't tell what game was good and what game was bad because the marketing and the graphics and everything made it look so cool, no yeah. matter how bad the game was, um, that you would end up with a, a room full of duds and all of a sudden all your customers are gone and you would go under. And that happened over and over and over again. So those 13,000 uh, arcades just dripped down to very, very few by the mid 80s.
0: Yeah, and I bet you, and this is just me speculating, but <clears throat> I bet you a lot of those arcade owners weren't like really into the games. They were, they're like, you know, I've got three car washes, and an arcade.
1: Well, yeah, and they also like made a pretty good sideline on selling little kids' drugs.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other, and this is um, from that Verge article you mentioned. Um, they list a another big reason, which uh, was that. Um, it, there was a cultural backlash, um, just, you know, that's sort, sort of always been the story from pinball, like you mentioned, early on to, you know, Grand Theft Auto now is parents and politicians saying, hey, these games are not only um, robbing our children of like potential homework time mm-hmm. or interacting with the world and with their friends or being in nature, but they're they're corrupting them.
1: yeah. Right. Like um, it, like they're not only being corrupted, like physically in the arcades by potential drug dealers and kids who want to teach them how to skip school more efficiently and that kind of right. stuff, <laughs> um, but also by the games themselves. Like they're being turned into zombies at best. At worst, they're being taught to enjoy things like violence, which is starting to become more of a thing. Yeah. Um, they are. Uh, who who knows what hidden messages somehow um, uh, Black Sabbath worked into some video game? Uh, <laughs> it was the same kind of moral panic that that yeah, it was. It was with, yeah. It was within the same bubble that anything that was that parents didn't fully understand that kids were really into was suspect and dangerous and probably mm-hmm. you just needed to keep your kids away from it.
0: Yeah, which is really ironic because these these are the same parents who let us be feral children. Right. Right. Because and then think on their high horse about these games that we play that we really enjoyed.
1: Well, th- I think they could understand that in a lot of ways. Like if you were out in the woods building a, a tree fort, like your parents had done that before. They understood it. They knew what it was like. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. These these arcades, they didn't have that experience. Or if they did, they remembered what they got into when they were playing pinball back in like the 40s or something like that as little kids. And they were like, "Oh yeah, I forgot. I, I learned how to skip school there. I should probably keep my kid from doing that." And then I think also there's just like a, it's just a generational gap that inevitably develops. Like I kind of understand yeah. where the parents were coming from at age 46 now. Whereas sure. if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have been right. like, "That is so lame. <laughs> parents just suck in general." You know? Um, yeah. I think that those the, all those things put together, like kind of kind of, just uh, beep. I think all those things kind of came together to to kill. Video games.
0: Yeah. Um, the irony of of what we were just talking about, too, is like, you know what goes on in the woods, too. That's where I learned to smoke cigarettes. Like, nothing was going on in, that's good in the woods. hmm You found all kinds of things in the woods, you know what I mean?
1: That's that's as far as I'm going as <laughs> the cigarettes thing, as far as recollections go. Right.
0: <laughs> but uh, this notion that we were all just out there playing, you know, playing nature kid. <laughs> so I you learned a lot of things in the woods as a kid.
1: I was playing nature kid. I was just smoking while I was doing it. Right. <laughs> Man, I had this thing where um, I kept a bar of soap that I'd stolen from my parents' house out at our tree fort where I would smoke cigarettes. Uh-huh, and I would, I would go out to the <laughs> golf course pond that was, like, right adjacent to the woods and wash my hands off first and then put the soap back and then go back <laughs> home as if that, like, got rid of the cigarette smell from me.
0: You would have scared the hell out of me because I was not uh, – <laughs> if I would have seen a kid my age or, God forbid, like f- five or six years younger than me smoking, yeah, I would have just run in the other direction.
1: Did I ever tell you the cigarette buying story from when I was, like, 12?
0: Was this—I know Emily got a note from her mom to buy her cigarettes, and that was legal. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. It wasn't that, was it?
1: No, this was me buying for myself and my friends. We all pooled our right. money together and came up with, I think, like $20 between us, which is like 10 packs of cigarettes at the time. <laughs> and right. I rode my bike to this convenience store— like, lean the bike up against the wall in full view of the clerk and walk <laughs> in. And I, I'm like, uh, I'd like 10 packs of cigarettes. Let's see. It was kind of like when you're at a donut shop ordering a dozen donuts. Right. But I was doing that with <laughs> cigarettes. I was like, I'll have those Cools and those Marlboros. <laughs> i have a couple Winstons. How about some Virginia Slims? And the guy sold them to me, put them in a bag oh, for me to, to drive or ride home on my bike more efficiently with.
0: Th- that is amazing. Yeah. It really was a beautiful time. <laughs> it really was. Uh, so, um, Dave posits, and he's, he's kind of right in a lot of ways is, uh, one of the death knells was in, uh, 1982 in a very sort of offhand comment from, uh, C. Everett Koop, who was a surgeon general at the time, had given a speech in Pittsburgh and this was in the Q and a afterward, uh, there was a question about video game effects and he just sort of tossed out. Yeah. You know, I think these kids are becoming addicted mm-hmm. body and soul. And then you know this was the Surgeon General. This is when people knew who that person was oh, and yeah. trusted what they said. Yeah, he was big, and uh, that just sort of became the media narrative. the The National PTA leapt on this, issued a report, uh, and I'm glad that Dave puts "report" in quotes because they weren't really basing it on hard data or really great studies. Mm-hmm. It was more like a lot of speculation yep. on how bad these games were for kids. Right. And that was all you need to hear. PTA put their seal on
1: it, and parents were like, "Okay, it's official." Between yeah. them and Sea Everett Coop, like this, this, this needs to end. Also, there was a part of it too. It wasn't necessarily the game consoles. Um, the uh, author of the Verge article, Laura June, points out that game consoles were around before the demise of the video arcade, and it really wasn't until like 1985, like we talked about in our our. Um, Nintendo episode that they got even bigger, but I would say still early 80s Atari was still pretty big. Yeah. So it was around at the time, but I think parents let that live in order to let video arcades die because at the very least you could keep an eye on your kid while they were playing the games at home. Right.
0: You know? Yeah, you could ignore them in the basement rather than ignore them (laughs) out in the wild. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's much tougher to smoke cigarettes in the basement than it is in the woods.
0: Uh, there was an early '90s renaissance uh, when Street Fighter II, The World Warrior, came out, followed by Mortal Kombat uh, and Tekken mm-hmm. uh, in the early '90s. So people crept back, and this was like my early college days. Yeah, I remember we would go to the uh, bowling alley in Athens to play <laughs> Street Fighter and stuff, and then the uh, whenever the first, uh, I guess it was the first PlayStation, maybe, is when we you know started really playing heavily at home with mortal Kombat, Uh, yeah with mortal Kombat and street fighter
1: so um you were into this because this is where i was at my peak as far as video arcades go yeah i was in
0: i was more into because like (laughs) i said i was in college so we would make the occasional trip to the bowling alley but it was mainly playing uh with my friends clay and jason and uh brett and bill playing at their house um i had a friend named tony
1: uh tony appy actually who i went to high school with And he was, like, 17 at the time and managed an entire Mountasia somehow. That's how responsible he was. Managed a what? A a Mountasia. It's like a family fun park where there's, like, (laughs) go-karts, mini-golf, huge arcade. Yeah, golf and stuff. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, And Tony was 17 and managed the place, and he would give us just unlimited coins. So we would go (laughs) in and play all these games, and, and when you have unlimited free coins, like you're really willing to try out all sorts of games. But we yeah. had a really good time there at Mount Asia <laughs> in the, the early, mid-'90s.
0: Oh, well, I know I mentioned what was sort of the pinnacle of my childhood life at one point was when, through something as my dad being principal, they had a free night at Charles Entertainment G's. Mm-hmm. And uh it was... I think just the educators and their their kids got to go. Oh, cool! But it, but it was just one free night at Chuck E. Cheese, and everything was free. That's huge. You just ordered pizza when you wanted, and the the first thing they did when you walk in was gave you a little uh, a little cloth sack full of tokens. Wow! And the idea of that being free was just mind blowing to like a to a ten year old. Oh, I can imagine. Two free pizza, free games, um, free coke. Yeah, I mean, you just got to play games for free all night long. And I remember going home that night being tired and just dreamy in my head thinking, this is the best night of my life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So things came back in the early 90s and the parents stepped up again and said, no, no, no. Everything we were saying before in 1983 that didn't apply now really does apply. Like the violence is just outrageous and outlandish. Like in in uh, Mortal Kombat, you could very memorably pull your opponent's final yeah. column out. It was yeah. fun. I
0: mean, looking back, it didn't look that great. So it's kind of funny
1: now exactly. that they're
0: in an uproar. <laughs>
1: but if they were in an uproar over the violence from Space Invaders, you can imagine what Mortal Kombat yeah. did to them. So that kind of killed that comeback as well. And plus also, um, home consoles just kept getting better and better and better.
0: Yeah. And that's the story of the arcade. I mean, you can still go now, you know, they're the... Sort of, there's the Dave and Buster's type places, which, again, like I said, are, you know, they've retrofitted. They have the giant space invaders. They have this huge Pac-Man game where multiple people can be Pac-Man at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they've kind of like tried to bring some of these into the modern era. But if you really want that throwback experience in most cities, they have some kind of a barcade style thing right. uh, where they have the classic games and you can, you can get a, a beer or something and play. I've not been to one. Have you? I went to one at one point, and then when I was living in L.A., uh, there was an arcade, like an old-school regular arcade. Mm-hmm. It wasn't some retro right. beer place yeah. uh, within walking distance of my first apartment. So I would go down there and play or go to the the bowling, the Big Lebowski Lanes, right. and some good arcade games.
1: Conceptually speaking, it just makes sense. Why not put, like, fun activities into a bar rather than mm-hmm. just booze and, you know, hopefully good conversation with whoever you're with? So – I totally get that. It seems like it would be fun if everybody, like, followed all the unwritten rules about playing games, you know? Yeah. I'll have to try it. I'll take you and me on a barcade date someday. Um, you got anything else? I got nothing else. Well, that means, everybody, that arcades are done, Chuck. I feel like we burned through a really great live show topic here.
0: Oh, that's all right. Yeah, it's People still... don't come to our shows that have been to arcades. <laughs> that's true.
1: That's a good point, man. Uh, and since Chuck just made a good point, that means it's time for Listener Man.
0: Uh I'm going to call this hamburger steak follow-up from uh, <laughs> Lori. Uh, hey, guys, heard the discussion of the hamburger steak and thought, hey, that solves my problem on what to cook for supper. But then Chuck said that hamburger steak was just hamburger pressed into a steak shape. Uh, I had to stop and step back to make sure I heard that correctly. Um, but try this maybe to juice up your hamburger steak. Mm-hmm. I think you'll like it better. Mix that hamburger with about a half a pack or less of Lipton onion soup mix. Ooh. that's a that's a, uh, an all-time great hack for hamburgers and turkey burgers. Period. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeps them very juicy and very flavorful. Mm-hmm. Um, add some bread crumbs and even egg if you want. This is meatloaf. And then cook it completely. Remove it from the skillet. Place the rest of the soup mix that you didn't use and water in the skillet that you cooked the burger in. And basically thicken that into a gravy. Wow. Uh, you could add some flour or cornstarch to thicken it up. Mm-hmm. And then add the burger back in. And then this is how Lori signs her her email. You can use my name. <laughs> <laughs> Comma, Lori. Yeah, that's from
1: Lori Michael. Uh, good. That sounds like a good recipe to me. That is a great recipe, Lori. Thank you for that. I'm going to try that post-haste. And it actually brings to mind another thing I just came up, Chuck, since we're talking about um, uh, kitchen hacks. Okay. Um, Have you ever taken the water that you boil the spaghetti in and then add a little bit to your sauce? No. Okay. I never had before until the other night, and apparently we've been doing it wrong all along. You have to do that. And the reason why is it actually counterintuitively thickens your sauce a little bit because of the, the... Carbs that are still floating around in the water. And just a little bit, just enough. And then the other thing it does is it's it, when you put the spaghetti, drained spaghetti into your sauce, which is what you're supposed to do. You don't put it on top of the spaghetti. You stir it around, toss it, it actually makes the sauce stick to the spaghetti more. And it is, I can report really, you should never make spaghetti any other way.
0: Alright. Okay. I'm gonna leapfrog off of that. Because this is along those same lines. If you make homemade mashed potatoes, mm-hmm. like I do, and you chop up raw potatoes and then boil that, mm-hmm. uh, then you, you strain the water out, save some of that water and add it back in, mm-hmm. uh, instead of just going right to like milk or cream or whatever you want to use mm-hmm. as your liquid. Mm-hmm. Put some of that starchy water back in first, mm-hmm. and I think it has a similar effect. Nice.
1: Yeah, starchy, that's what I was after, not carby.
0: Yeah, and finally... Just to uh, add a correction, or not a correction, but a tip, Uh, your butterbell you mentioned was getting moldy. We had quite a few people write in that say to use salted butter and your butterbell will not get moldy.
1: Yeah, I don't, I I like to salt my own butter. I don't buy it pre-salted. I'm not a communist. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that was part of it too. And also I think I may have fudged slightly when I said yes, I, I did change the water every three days. I think I did from time to time, but I think
0: that probably had something to do
1: with it. But it's nice to know that wasn't the entire thing, that I was using unsalted.
0: All right. Well, if anyone's still listening now, these are great
1: kitchen tips. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think we should probably get a move on. So thanks, Lori, for that awesome recipe. Thank you for your tip. Thank me for my tip as well. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us to give us a tip of any sort, you can email us at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.
1: In Puerto Rico, there's adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored. Like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. Get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico and that remind you why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island, it becomes a part of you. No passports required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through.